Welcome to the 24th reading of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We continue this reading with Book 3, Chapter 3, Section 23. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 23. If you attend properly, you will perceive that the Apostle speaks not of one particular lapse, or two, but of the universal revolt by which the reprobate renounced salvation. It is not strange that God should be implacable to those whom John, in his epistle, declares not to have been of the elect from whom they went out. 1 John 2, verse 19. For he is directing his discourse against those who imagined that they could return to the Christian religion, though they had once revolted from it. To divest them of this false and pernicious opinion, he says, as is most true, that those who had once knowingly and willingly cast off fellowship with Christ had no means of returning to it. It is not, however, so cast off by those who merely, by the dissoluteness of their lives, transgress the word of the Lord, but by those who avowedly reject his whole doctrine. There is a paralogism in the expression casting off and sinning. Casting off, as interpreted by the Novations, is when anyone, notwithstanding of being taught by the law of the Lord not to steal or commit adultery, refrains not from theft or adultery. On the contrary, I hold that there is a tacit antithesis, in which all the things, contrary to those which had been said, must be held to be repeated, so that the thing expressed is not some particular vice, but universal aversion to God, and, so to speak, the apostasy of the whole man. Therefore, when he speaks of those falling away, quote, who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, unquote, we must understand him as referring to those who with deliberate impiety have quenched the light of the Spirit, tasted of the heavenly word, and spurned it, alienated themselves from the sanctification of the Spirit, and trampled underfoot the word of God and the powers of a world to come. The better to show that this was the species of impiety intended, he afterwards expressly adds the term, willfully. For when he says, quote, If we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, unquote, he denies not that Christ is a perpetual victim to expiate the transgression of saints. This the whole epistle, in explaining the priesthood of Christ, distinctly proclaims. But, he says, that there remains no other sacrifice after this one is abandoned and it is abandoned when the truth of the gospel is professedly abjured. Section 24. To some it seems harsh, and at variance with the divine mercy, utterly to deny forgiveness to anyone who betake themselves to it. This is easily disposed of. It is not said that pardon will be refused if they turn to the Lord, but it is altogether denied that they can turn to repentance, inasmuch as for their ingratitude they are struck by the just judgment of God with eternal blindness. There is nothing contrary to this in the application which is afterwards made of the example of Esau, who tried in vain by crying and tears to recover his lost birthright, nor in the denunciation of the prophet, quote, They cried, and I would not hear, unquote. Such modes of expression do not denote true conversion or calling upon God, but that anxiety with which the wicked, when in calamity, are compelled to see what they before securely disregarded, viz., that nothing can avail but the assistance of the Lord. This, however, they do not so much implore as lament the loss of. 
Hence, all that the prophet means by crying, and the apostle by tears, is the dreadful torment which stings and excruciates the wicked in despair. It is of consequence carefully to observe this, for otherwise God would be inconsistent with himself when he proclaims through the prophet that, quote, if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, unquote, quote, he shall surely live, he shall not die, unquote. Ezekiel 18, verses 21 and 22. And, as I have already said, it is certain that the mind of man cannot be changed for the better unless by his preventing grace. The promise as to those who call upon him will never fail. But the names of conversion and prayer are improperly given to that blind torment by which the reprobate are distracted when they see that they must seek God if they would find a remedy for their calamities, and yet shun to approach him. Section 25 But as the apostle declares that God is not appeased by feigned repentance, it is asked how Ahab obtained pardon and averted the punishment denounced against him, 1 Kings 21, verses 28 to 29, seeing, it appears, he was only amazed on the sudden, and afterwards continued his former course of life. He indeed clothed himself in sackcloth, covered himself with ashes, lay on the ground, and, as the testimony given to him bears, humbled himself before God. It was a small matter to rend his garments while his heart continued obstinate and swollen with wickedness, and yet we see that God was inclined to mercy. I answer that though hypocrites are thus occasionally spared for a time, the wrath of God still lies upon them, and that they are thus spared not so much on their own account as for a public example. For what did Ahab gain by the mitigation of his punishment, except that he did not suffer it alive on the earth? The curse of God, though concealed, was fixed on his house, and he himself went to eternal destruction. We may see the same thing in Esau, Genesis 27, verses 38 and 39. For though he met with a refusal, but as, according to the declaration of God, the spiritual inheritance could be possessed only by one of the brothers, when Jacob was selected instead of Esau, that event excluded him from the divine mercy. But still there was given to him, as a man of a groveling nature, this consolation, that he should be filled with the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven. And this, as I lately said, should be regarded as done for the example of others, that we may learn to apply our minds and exert ourselves with greater alacrity in the way of sincere repentance, as there cannot be the least doubt that God will be ready to pardon those who turn to him truly and with the heart, seeing his mercy extends even to the unworthy, though they bear marks of his displeasure. In this way also we are taught how dreadful the judgment is which awaits all the rebellious who with audacious brow and iron heart make it their sport to despise and disregard the divine threatenings. God in this way often stretched forth his hand to deliver the Israelites from their calamities, though their cries were pretended and their minds double and perfidious, as he himself complains in the Psalms that they immediately returned to their former course. Psalm 78 verses 36 and 37. But he designed thus by kindness and forbearance to bring them to true repentance, or leave them without excuse. And yet by remitting the punishment for a time, he does not lay himself under any perpetual obligation. He rather at times rises with greater severity against hypocrites, and doubles their punishment, that it may thereby appear how much hypocrisy displeases him. But, as I have observed, he gives some examples of his inclination to pardon, that the pious may thereby be stimulated to amend their lives, and the pride of those who petulantly kick against the pricks be more severely condemned. Chapter 4. Penitence, as explained in the sophistical jargon of the schoolmen, widely different from the purity required by the gospel, of confession and satisfaction. There are 39 sections. Section 1. I come now to an examination of what the scholastic sophists teach concerning repentance. This I will do as briefly as possible, for I have no intention to take up every point, lest this work, which I am desirous to frame as a compendium of doctrine, should exceed all bounds. They have managed to envelop a matter otherwise not much involved in so many perplexities that it will be difficult to find an outlet if once you get plunged but a little way into their mire. And first, in giving a definition, they plainly show they never understood what repentance means, for they fasten on some expressions in the writings of the fathers, which are very far from expressing the nature of repentance. For instance, that to repent is to deplore past sins and not commit what is to be deplored. Again, that it is to bewail past evils and not again to do what is to be wailed. Again, that it is a kind of grieving revenge, punishing in itself what it grieves to have committed. 
Again, that it is sorrow of heart and bitterness of soul for the evils which the individual has committed are to which he has consented. Supposing we grant that these things were well said by fathers, though if one were inclined to dispute, it were not difficult to deny it. They were not, however, said with a view of describing repentance, but only of exhorting penitents not again to fall into the same faults from which they had been delivered. But if all descriptions of this kind are to be converted into definitions, there are others which have as good a title to be added. For instance, the following sentence of Chrysostom, quote, Repentance is a medicine for the cure of sin, a gift bestowed from above, an admirable virtue, a grace surpassing the power of flaws, unquote. Moreover, the doctrine which they afterwards deliver is somewhat worse than their definition, for they are so keenly bent on external exercises that all you can gather from immense volumes is that repentance is a discipline and austerity which serves partly to subdue the flesh, partly to chasten and punish sins. Of internal renovation of mind, bringing with it true amendments of life, there is a strange silence. No doubt they talk much of contrition and attrition, torment the soul with many scruples, and involve it in great trouble and anxiety. But when they seem to have deeply wounded the heart, they cure all its bitterness by a slight sprinkling of ceremonies. Repentance thus shrewdly defined, they divide into contrition of the heart, confession of the mouth, and satisfaction of works. This is not more logical than the definition, though they would be thought to have spent their whole lives in framing syllogisms. But if anyone argues from the definition, a mode of argument prevalent with dialecticians, that a man may weep over his past sins and not commit things that cause weeping, may bewail past evils and not commit things that are to be bewailed, may punish what he is grieved for having committed, though he does not confess it with the mouth, how will they defend their division? For if he may be a true penitent and not confess, repentance can exist without confession. If they answer that this division refers to repentance regarded as a sacrament, or is to be understood of repentance in its most perfect form, which they do not comprehend in their definitions, the mistake does not rest with me. Let them blame themselves for not defining more purely and clearly. When any matter is discussed, I certainly am dull enough to refer everything to the definition as the hinge and foundation of the whole discussion. But granting that this is a license which masters have, let us now survey the different parts and their order. In omitting as frivolous several things which they vend with solemn brow as mysteries, I do it not from ignorance. It were not very difficult to dispose of all those points which they plume themselves on their acuteness and subtlety in discussing, but I consider it a sacred duty not to trouble the reader to no purpose with such absurdities. It is certainly easy to see from the questions which they move and agitate, and in which they miserably entangle themselves, that they are prating of things they know not. Of this nature are the following, whether repentance of one sin is pleasing to God, while there is an obstinate adherence to other sins. Again, whether punishments divinely inflicted are available for satisfaction. Again, whether repentance can be several times repeated for mortal sins, whereas they grossly and wickedly define that daily repentance has to do with none but venial sins. In like manner, with gross error, they greatly torment themselves with a saying of Jerome that repentance is a second plank after shipwreck. Herein they show that they have never awoke from brutish stupor, so as to obtain a distant view of the thousandth part of their sins. Section 2. I would have my readers to observe that the dispute here relates not to a matter of no consequence, but to one of the most important of all, viz. the forgiveness of sins. For while they require three things in repentance, viz. compunction of heart, confession of the mouth, and satisfaction of work, they at the same time teach that these are necessary to obtain the pardon of sins. If there is anything in the whole compass of religion which it is of importance to us to know, this certainly is one of the most important, viz. to perceive and rightly hold by what means, what rule, what terms, with what facility or difficulty, forgiveness of sins may be obtained. Unless our knowledge here is clear and certain, our conscience can have no rest at all, no peace with God, no confidence or security, but is continually trembling, fluctuating, boiling, and distracted, dreads, hates, and shuns the presence of God. But if forgiveness of sins depends on the conditions to which they bind it, nothing can be more wretched and deplorable than our situation. Contrition they represent as the first step in obtaining pardon and they exact it as due, that is, full and complete. Meanwhile, they decide not when one may feel secure of having performed this contrition in due measure. 
I admit that we are bound strongly and incessantly to urge every man bitterly to lament his sins, and thereby stimulate himself more and more to dislike and hate them. For this is the, quote, repentance to salvation not to be repented of, unquote, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. But when such bitterness of sorrow is demanded as may correspond to the magnitude of the offense, and be weighed in the balance with confidence of pardon, miserable consciences are sadly perplexed and tormented when they see that the contrition due for sin is laid upon them, and yet that they have no measure of what is due so as to enable them to determine that they have made full payment. If they say we are to do what in us lies, we are always brought back to the same point. For when will any man venture to promise himself that he has done his utmost in bewailing sin? Therefore, when consciences, after a lengthened struggle and long contests with themselves, find no haven in which they may rest as a means of alleviating their condition in some degree, they extort sorrow and wring out tears in order to perfect their contrition. Section 3. If they say that this is calumny on my part, let them come forward and point out a single individual who, by this doctrine of contrition, has not either been driven to despair, or has not, instead of true, opposed pretended fear to the justice of God. We have elsewhere observed that forgiveness of sins never can be obtained without repentance, because none but the afflicted and those wounded by a consciousness of sins can sincerely implore the mercy of God. But we at the same time added that repentance cannot be the cause of the forgiveness of sins. And we also did away with that torment of souls, the dogma that it must be performed as due. Our doctrine was that the soul looked not to its own compunction or its own tears, but fixed both eyes on the mercy of God alone. Only we observe that those who labor and are heavy laden are called by Christ, seeing he was sent, quote, to preach good tidings to the meek, unquote, quote, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, unquote, quote, to comfort all that mourn, unquote. Matthew 11, verse 28, Isaiah 61, verse 1, and Luke 4, verse 18. Hence the Pharisees were excluded, because, full of their own righteousness, they acknowledged not their own poverty, and despisers, because, regardless of the divine anger, they sought no remedy for their wickedness. Such persons neither labor nor are heavy laden, are not broken-hearted, bound, nor in prison. But there is a great difference between teaching that forgiveness of sins is merited by full and complete contrition, which the sinner never can give, and instructing him to hunger and thirst after the mercy of God, that, recognizing his wretchedness, his turmoil, weariness, and captivity, you may show him where he should seek refreshment, rest, and liberty. In fine, teach him in his humility to give glory to God. Section 4. Confession has ever been a subject of keen contest between the canonists and the scholastic theologians, the former contending that confession is of divine authority, the latter insisting, on the contrary, that it is merely enjoined by ecclesiastical constitution. In this contest, great effrontery has been displayed by the theologians, who have corrupted and violently wrested every passage of scripture they have quoted in their favor. And when they saw that even thus they could not gain their object, those who wished to be thought particularly acute had recourse to the evasion that confession is of divine authority in regard to the substance, but that it afterwards received its form from positive enactment. Thus the silliest of these quibblers refer the citation to divine authority from its being said, quote, Adam, where art thou? Unquote. Genesis 3, verses 9 and 12. And also the exception from Adam having replied, as if accepting, Quote, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, unquote, etc., but say that the form of both was appointed by civil law. Let us see by what arguments they prove that this confession, formed or unformed, is a divine commandment. The Lord, they say, sent the lepers to the priests. Matthew 8, verse 4. What? Did he send them to confession? Whoever heard tell that the Levitical priests were appointed to hear confession? Here they resort to allegory. The priests were appointed by the Mosaic Law to discern between leper and the leper. Sin is spiritual leprosy. Therefore, it belongs to the priests to decide upon it. Before I answer, I would ask in passing why, if this passage makes them judges of spiritual leprosy, they claim the cognizance of natural and carnal leprosy. This, forsooth, is not to play upon Scripture. The law gives the cognizance of leprosy to the Levitical priests. Let us usurp this to ourselves. Sin is spiritual leprosy. Let us also have cognizance of sin. I now give my answer. There being a change of the priesthood, there must of necessity be a change of the law. 
All the sacerdotal functions were transferred to Christ, and in him fulfilled and ended. Hebrews 7, verse 12. To him alone, therefore, all the rights and honors of the priesthood have been transferred. If they are so fond, then, of hunting out allegories, let them set Christ before them as the only priest, and place full and universal jurisdiction on his tribunal. This we will readily admit. Besides, there is an incongruity in their allegory. It classes a merely civil enactment among ceremonies. Why then does Christ send the lepers to the priests? Lest the priest should be charged with violating the law which ordained that the person cured of leprosy should present himself before the priest and be purified by the offering of a sacrifice, he orders the lepers who had been cleansed to do what the law required, quote, Go and show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them, unquote. Luke 5, verse 14. And assuredly this miracle would be a testimony to them. They had pronounced them lepers. They now pronounced them cured. Whether they would or not, they are forced to become witnesses to the miracles of Christ. Christ allows them to examine the miracle, and they cannot deny it. Yet as they still quibble, they have need of a testimony. So it is elsewhere said, quote, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness unto all nations. Unquote. Matthew 24, verse 14. Again, quote, Ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Unquote. Matthew 10, verse 18. That is, in order that in the judgment of God they might be more fully convicted. But if they preferred taking the view of Chrysostom, he shows that this was done by Christ for the sake of the Jews also, that he might not be regarded as a violator of the law. But we are ashamed to appeal to the authority of any man in a matter so clear when Christ declares that he left the legal right of the priests entire as professed enemies of the gospel, who were always intent on making a clamor if their mouths were not stopped. Wherefore, let the popish priests, in order to retain this privilege, openly make common cause with those whom it was necessary to restrain, by forcible means, from speaking evil of Christ. For there is here no reference to his true ministers. Section 5. They draw their second argument from the same fountain, I mean allegory, as if allegories were of much avail in confirming any doctrine. But indeed let them avail, if those which I am able to produce are not more specious than theirs. They say, then, that the Lord, after raising Lazarus, commanded his disciples to, quote, loose him and let him go, unquote. John 11, verse 44. Their first statement is untrue. We nowhere read that the Lord said this to the disciples, and it is much more probable that he spoke to the Jews who were standing by, that from there being no suspicion of fraud, the miracle might be more manifest, and his power might be the more conspicuous from his raising the dead without touching him by a mere word. In the same way, I understand that our Lord, to leave no ground of suspicion to the Jews, wished them to roll back the stone, feel the stench, perceive the sure signs of death, see him rise by the mere power of a word, and first handle him when alive. And this is the view of Chrysostom. But granting that it was said to the disciples, what can they gain by it? That the Lord gave the apostles the power of loosing? How much more aptly and dexterously might we allegorize and say that by this symbol the Lord designed to teach his followers to loose those whom he raises up, that is, not to bring to remembrance the sins which he himself had forgotten not to condemn as sinners, those whom he had acquitted, not still to upbraid those whom he had pardoned, not to be stern and severe in punishing, while he himself was merciful and ready to forgive. Certainly nothing should more incline us to pardon than the example of the judge, who threatens that he will be inexorable to the rigid and inhumane. Let them go now and vend their allegories. Section 6. They now come to closer quarters, while they support their view by passages of Scripture which they think clearly in their favor. Those who came to John's baptism confessed their sins, and James bids us confess our sins one to another. James 5 or 16. It is not strange that those who wish to be baptized confess their sins. It has already been mentioned that John preached the baptism of repentance, baptized with water unto repentance. Whom then could he baptize but those who confess that they were sinners? Baptism is a symbol of the forgiveness of sins, and who could be admitted to receive the symbol but sinners acknowledging themselves as such? They therefore confess their sins that they might be baptized. Nor, without good reason, does James enjoin us to confess our sins one to another. But if they would attend to what immediately follows, they would perceive that this gives them little support. The words are, quote, Confess your sins one to another, and pray one for another, unquote. 
He joins together mutual confession and mutual prayer. If, then, we are to confess to priests only, we are also to pray for them only. What? It would even follow from the words of James that priests alone can confess. In saying that we are to confess mutually, he must be addressing those only who can hear the confession of others. He says, Greek word, Alpha, Lambda, Lambda, Eta, Omicron, Lambda, Epsilon, Sigma, Aleolus. Mutually, by turns, or, if they prefer it, reciprocally. But those only can confess reciprocally who are fit to hear confession. This being a privilege which they bestow upon priests only, we also leave them the office of confessing to each other. Have done, then, with such frivolous absurdities, and let us receive the true meaning of the apostle which is plain and simple. First, that we are to deposit our infirmities in the breasts of each other, with the view of receiving mutual counsel, sympathy, and comfort. And secondly, that mutually conscious of the infirmities of our brethren, we are to pray to the Lord for them. Why then quote James against us who so earnestly insist on acknowledgment of the divine mercy? No man can acknowledge the mercy of God without previously confessing his own misery. Nay, we pronounce every man to be anathema who does not confess himself a sinner before God, before his angels, before the church, in short, before all men. Quote, the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Unquote. Quote, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Unquote. That God alone may be justified and exalted. Galatians 3 verse 22 and Romans 3 verses 9 and 19. Section 7. I wonder at their effrontery in venturing to maintain that the confession of which they speak is of divine authority. We admit that the use of it is very ancient, but we can easily prove that at one time it was free. It certainly appears from their own records that no law or constitution respecting it was enacted before the days of Innocent III. Surely if there had been a more ancient law they would have fastened on it, instead of being satisfied with the decree of the Council of Lateran, and so making themselves ridiculous even to children. In other matters they hesitate not to coin fictitious decrees, which they ascribe to the most ancient councils, that they may blind the eyes of the simple by veneration for antiquity. In this instance it has not occurred to them to practice this deception, and hence, themselves being witnesses, three centuries have not yet elapsed since the bridle was put and the necessity of confession imposed by Innocent III. And to say nothing of the time, the mere barbarism of the terms used destroys the authority of the law. For when these worthy fathers enjoined that every person of both sexes, utriusque sexus, must once a year confess his sins to his own priest, men of wit humorously object that the precept binds hermaphrodites only, and has no application to anyone who is either a male or a female. A still grosser absurdity has been displayed by their disciples, who are unable to explain what is meant by one's own priest, proprius sacerdos. Let all the hired ravers of the Pope babble as they may. We hold that Christ is not the author of this law, which compels men to enumerate their sins. Nay, that twelve hundred years elapsed after the resurrection of Christ before any such law was made, and that consequently this tyranny was not introduced until piety and doctrine were extinct, and pretended pastors had usurped to themselves unbridled license. There is clear evidence in historians and other ancient writers to show that this was a politic discipline introduced by bishops, not a law enacted by Christ or the apostles. Out of many I will produce only one passage, which will be no obscure proof. Saucerman relates that this constitution of the bishops was carefully observed in the western churches, but especially at Rome, thus intimating that it was not the universal custom of all churches. He also says that one of the presbyters was specially appointed to take charge of this duty. This abundantly confutes their falsehood as to the keys being given to the whole priesthood indiscriminately for this purpose, since the function was not common to all the priests, but specially belonged to one priest whom the bishop had appointed to it. He it was, the same who at present in each of the cathedral churches has the name of penitentiary, who had cognizance of offenses which were more heinous, and required to be rebuked for the sake of example. He afterwards adds that the same custom existed at Constantinople, until a certain matron, while pretending to confess, was discovered to have used it as a cloak to cover her intercourse with a deacon. In consequence of that crime, Nectarius, the bishop of that church, a man famous for learning and sanctity, abolished the custom of confessing. Here, then, let these asses prick up their ears. If auricular confession was a divine law, how could Nectarius have dared to abolish or remodel it? 
Nectarius, a holy man of God, approved by the suffrage of all antiquity, will they charge with heresy and schism? With the same vote, they will condemn the church of Constantinople, in which Sosimon affirms that the custom of confessing was not only disguised for a time, but even in his own memory abolished. Nay, let them charge with defection not only Constantinople, but all the eastern churches, which, if they say true, disregarded an inviolable law enjoined on all Christians. Section 8. This abrogation is clearly attested in so many passages by Chrysostom, who lived at Constantinople and was himself prelate of the church, that it is strange they can venture to maintain the contrary. Quote, tell your sins, unquote, says he, that you may efface them. If you blush to tell another what sins you have committed, tell them daily in your soul. I say not. Tell them to your fellow servant who may upbraid you, but tell them to God who cures them. Confess your sins upon your bed, that your conscience may there daily recognize its iniquities. Unquote. Again, quote, Now, however, it is not necessary to confess before witnesses. Let the examination of your faults be made in your own thought. Let the judgment be without a witness. Let God alone see you confessing. Unquote. Again, quote, I do not lead you publicly into the view of your fellow servants. I do not force you to disclose your sins to men. Review and lay open your conscience before God. Show your wounds to the Lord, the best of physicians, and seek medicine from Him. Show to him who upbraids not, but cures most kindly. Unquote. Again, quote, Certainly tell it not to man, lest he upbraid you. Nor must you confess to your fellow servant, who may make it public. But show your wounds to the Lord, who takes care of you, who is kind and can cure. Unquote. He afterwards introduces God, speaking thus, quote, I oblige you not to come into the midst of a theater and have many witnesses. Tell your sins to me alone in private, that I may cure the ulcer. Unquote. Shall we say that Chrysostom, in writing these and similar passages, carried his presumption so far as to free the consciences of men from those chains with which they are bound by the divine law? By no means. But knowing that it was not at all prescribed by the word of God, he dares not exact it as necessary. Section 9. But that the whole matter may be more plainly unfolded, we shall first honestly state the nature of confession as delivered in the word of God, and thereafter subjoin their inventions, not all of them indeed, who could drink up that boundless sea, but those only which contain a summary of their secret confession. Here I am grieved to mention how frequently the old interpreter has rendered the word confess instead of praise, a fact notorious to the most illiterate, were it not fitting to expose their effrontery in transferring to their tyrannical edict what was written concerning the praises of God. To prove that confession was the effect of exhilarating the mind, they obtrude the passage in the psalm, quote, with the voice of joy and praise, unquote. Psalm 42.4 But if such a metamorphosis is valid, anything may be made of anything. But as they have lost all shame, let pious readers reflect how, by the just vengeance of God, they have been given over to a reprobate mind, that their audacity may be the more detestable. If we are disposed to acquiesce in the simple doctrine of Scripture, there will be no danger of our being misled by such glosses. There one method of confessing is prescribed, since it is the Lord who forgives, forgets, and wipes away sins, to him let us confess them, that we may obtain pardon. He is the physician, therefore, let us show our wounds to him. He is hurt and offended, let us ask peace of him. He is the discerner of the heart, and knows all our thoughts, let us hasten to pour out our hearts before him. He it is, in fine, who invites sinners. Let us delay not to draw near to him. Quote, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, unquote, says David. Quote, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Unquote. Psalm 32, verse 5. Another specimen of David's confession is as follows. Quote, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Unquote. Psalm 51, verse 1. The following is Daniel's confession. Quote, we have sinned, and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and thy judgments. Unquote. Daniel 9, verse 5. Other examples everywhere occur in Scripture. The quotation of them would almost fill a volume. Quote, if we confess our sins, unquote, says John, quote, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Unquote. 1 John 1, verse 9. To whom are we to confess? To him surely, that is, we are to fall down before him with a grieved and humbled heart, and sincerely, accusing and condemning ourselves, seek forgiveness of his goodness and mercy. Section 10. 
He who has adopted this confession from the heart, and as in the presence of God, will doubtless have a tongue ready to confess whenever there is occasion among men to publish the mercy of God. He will not be satisfied to whisper the secret of his heart for once into the ear of one individual, but will often and openly, and in the hearing of the whole world, ingenuously make mention both of his own ignominy and of the greatness and glory of the Lord. In this way David, after he was accused by Nathan, being stung in his conscience, confesses his sin before God and men. Quote, I have sinned unto the Lord, unquote, says he, Second Samuel 12, verse 13. That is, I have now no excuse, no evasion. All must judge me a sinner, and that which I wish to be secret with the Lord must also be made manifest to men. Hence the secret confession which is made to God is followed by voluntary confession to men, whenever that is conducive to the divine glory or our humiliation. For this reason the Lord anciently enjoined the people of Israel that they should repeat the words after the priest and make public confession of their iniquities in the temple, because he foresaw that this was a necessary help to enable each one to form a just idea of himself. And it is proper that, by confession of our misery, we should manifest the mercy of our God both among ourselves and before the whole world. Section 11. It is proper that this mode of confession should both be ordinary in the church and also be specially employed on extraordinary occasions, when the people in common happen to have fallen into any fault. Of this latter description we have an example in the solemn confession which the whole people made under the authority and guidance of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, verses 6 and 7. For their long captivity, the destruction of the temple, and the suppression of their religion, having been the common punishment of their defection, they could not make meet acknowledgment of the blessing of deliverance without previous confession of their guilt. And it matters not, though in one assembly it may sometimes happen that a few are innocent, saying that the members of a languid and sickly body cannot boast of soundness. Nay, it is scarcely possible that these few have not contracted some taint, and so bear part of the blame. Therefore, as often as we are afflicted with pestilence, or war, or famine, or any other calamity whatsoever, if it is our duty to betake ourselves to mourning, fasting, and other signs of guiltiness, confession also, on which all the others depend, is not to be neglected. That ordinary confession which the Lord has moreover expressly commended, no sober man who has reflected on his usefulness will venture to disapprove seeing that in every sacred assembly we stand in the view of God and angels, in what way should our service begin but in acknowledging our own unworthiness? But this, you will say, is done in every prayer, for as often as we pray for pardon, we confess our sins. I admit it. But if you consider how great is our carelessness, our drowsiness, our sloth, you will grant me that it would be a salutary ordinance if the Christian people were exercised in humiliation by some formal method of confession. For though the ceremony which the Lord enjoined on the Israelites belonged to the tutelage of the law, yet the thing itself belongs in some respect to us also. And indeed, in all well-ordered churches, in observance of a useful custom, the minister, each Lord's Day, frames a formula of confession in his own name and that of the people, in which he makes a common confession of iniquity and supplicates pardon from the Lord. In short, by this key, a door of prayer is opened privately for each and publicly for all. Section 12. Two other forms of private confession are approved by Scripture. The one is made on our own account, and to it reference is made in the passage in James, quote, Confess your sins one to another, unquote, James 5, verse 16. For the meaning is that by disclosing our infirmities to each other, we are to obtain the aid of mutual counsel and consolation. The other is to be made for the sake of our neighbor, to appease and reconcile him if by our fault he has been in any respect injured. In the former, although James, by not specifying any particular individual into whose bosom we are to disburden our feelings, leaves us the free choice of confessing to any member of the church who may seem fittest. Yet, as for the most part, pastors are to be supposed better qualified than others, our choice ought chiefly to fall upon them. And the ground of preference is that the Lord, by calling them to the ministry, points them out as the persons by whose lips we are to be taught to subdue and correct our sins, and derive consolation from the hope of pardon. For as the duty of mutual admonition and correction is committed to all Christians, but especially enjoined on ministers, so while we ought all to console each other mutually and confirm each other in confidence in the divine mercy, we see that ministers, to assure our consciences of the forgiveness of sins, are appointed to be the witnesses and sponsors of it, so that they are themselves said to forgive sins and loose souls. 
Matthew 16, verse 19, and 18, verse 18. When you hear this attributed to them, reflect that it is for your use, that every believer therefore remember that if in private he is so agonized and afflicted by a sense of his sins that he cannot obtain relief without the aid of others, it is his duty not to neglect the remedy which God provides for him, viz., to have recourse for relief to a private confession to his own pastor, and for consolation privately implore the assistance of him whose business it is, both in public and private, to solace the people of God with gospel doctrine. But we are always to use moderation, lest in a matter as to which God prescribes no certain rule, our consciences be burdened with a certain yoke. Hence it follows first that confession of this nature ought to be free so as not to be exacted of all, but only recommended to those who feel that they have need of it. And secondly, even those who use it according to their necessity must neither be compelled by any precept nor artfully induced to enumerate all their sins, but only insofar as they shall deem it for their interest, that they may obtain the full benefit of consolation. Faithful pastors, as they would both eschew tyranny in their ministry and superstition in the people, must not only leave this liberty to churches, but defend and strenuously vindicate it. Section 13. Of the second form of confession, our Savior speaks in Matthew, quote, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift, unquote. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. Thus love, which has been interrupted by our fault, must be restored by acknowledging and asking pardon for the fault. Under this head is included the confession of those who by their sin have given offense to the whole church. See above in section 10. For if Christ attaches so much importance to the offense of one individual that he forbids the sacrifice of all who have sinned in any respect against their brethren until by due satisfaction they have regained their favor, how much greater reason is there that he who by some evil example has offended the church should be reconciled to it by the acknowledgment of his fault? Thus the member of the church of Corinth was restored to communion after he had humbly submitted to correction. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. This form of confession existed in the ancient Christian church, as Cyprian relates, quote, They practice repentance, unquote, says he, quote, For a proper time, then they come to confession, and by the laying on of the hands of the bishop and clergy are admitted to communion. Scripture knows nothing of any other form or method of confessing, and it belongs not to us to bind new chains upon consciences which Christ most strictly prohibits from being brought into bondage. Meanwhile, that the flock present themselves before the pastor whenever they would partake of the Holy Supper, I am so far from disapproving that I am most desirous it should be everywhere observed. For both those whose conscience is hindered may thence obtain singular benefit, and those who require admonition thus afford an opportunity for it provided always no countenance is given to tyranny and superstition." Unquote. Section 14. The power of the keys is placed in the three following modes of confession, either when the whole church, in a formal acknowledgment of its defects, supplicates pardon, or when a private individual who has given public offense by some notable delinquency testifies his repentance, or when he who from disquiet of conscience needs the aid of his minister acquaints him with his infirmity. With regard to the reparation of offense, the case is different, for though in this also provision is made for peace of conscience, yet the principal object is to suppress hatred and reunite brethren in the bond of peace. But the benefit of which I have spoken is by no means to be despised, that we may the more willingly confess our sins. For when the whole church stands, as it were, at the bar of God, confesses her guilt, and finds her only refuge in the divine mercy, it is no common or light solace to have an ambassador of Christ present, invested with the mandate of reconciliation, by whom she may hear her absolution pronounced. Here the utility of the keys is justly commended when that embassy is duly discharged with becoming order and reverence. In like manner, when he who has, as it were, become an alien from the church, receives pardon, and is thus restored to brotherly unity, how great is the benefit of understanding that he is pardoned by those to whom Christ said, quote, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. Unquote. John 20, verse 23. Nor is private absolution of less benefit or efficacy when asked by those who stand in need of a special remedy for their infirmity. 
It not seldom happens that he who hears general promises which are intended for the whole congregation of the faithful nevertheless remains somewhat in doubt, and is still disquieted in mind as if his own remission were not yet obtained. Should this individual lay open the secret wound of his soul to his pastor, and hear these words of the gospel specially addressed to him, quote, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee, unquote. Matthew 9, verse 2. His mind will feel secure, and escape from the trepidation with which it was previously agitated. But when we treat of the keys, we must always beware of dreaming of any power apart from the preaching of the gospel. This subject will be more fully explained when we come to the treat of the government of the church. Book 4, chapters 11 and 12. There we shall see that whatever privilege of binding and loosing Christ has bestowed on his church is annexed to the word. This is especially true with regard to the ministry of the keys, the whole power of which consists in this, that the grace of the gospel is publicly and privately sealed on the minds of believers by means of those whom the Lord has appointed, and the only method in which this can be done is by preaching. Section 15. What say the Roman theologians? That all persons of both sexes, so soon as they shall have reached the years of discretion, must, once a year at least, confess all their sins to their own priest. That the sin is not discharged unless the resolution to confess has been firmly conceived that if this resolution is not carried into effect when an opportunity offers, there is no entrance into paradise, that the priest, moreover, has the power of the keys by which he can loose and bind the sinner, because the declaration of Christ is not in vain. Quote, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Unquote. Matthew 18, verse 18. Concerning this power, however, they wage a fierce war among themselves. Some say there is only one key essentially, viz. the power of binding and loosing. That knowledge indeed is requisite for the proper use of it, but only as an accessory, not as essentially inherent in it. Others, seeing that this gave two unrestrained license, have imagined two keys, viz. discernment and power. Others again, seeing that the license of priests was curbed by such restraint, have forged other keys, see below in section 21, the authority of discerning to be used in defining, and the power to carry their sentences into execution, and to these they add knowledge as a counselor. This binding and loosing, however, they do not venture to interpret simply to forgive and wipe away sins, because they hear the Lord proclaiming by the prophet, quote, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior, unquote. Quote, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions, unquote. Isaiah 43, verses 11 and 25. But they say it belongs to the priest to declare who are bound or loosed, and whose sins are remitted or retained, to declare, moreover, either by confession, when he absolves and retains sins, or by sentence, when he excommunicates or admits to communion in the sacraments. Lastly, perceiving that the knot is not yet untied, because it may always be objected that persons are often undeservedly bound and loosed, and therefore not bound or loosed in heaven, as their ultimate resource they answer that the conferring of the keys must be taken with limitation, because Christ has promised that the sentence of the priest, properly pronounced, will be approved at his judgment seat according as the bound or loosed asked what they merited. They say, moreover, that those keys which are conferred by bishops at ordination were given by Christ to all priests, but that the free use of them is with those only who discharge ecclesiastical functions, that with priests excommunicated or suspended, the keys themselves indeed remain but tied and rusty. Those who speak thus may justly be deemed modest and sober compared with others, who on a new anvil have forged new keys by which they say that the treasury of heaven is locked up, these we shall afterwards consider in their own place. In chapter 5, section 2. Section 16. To each of these views I will briefly reply. As to their binding the souls of believers by their laws, whether justly or unjustly, I say nothing at present, as it will be seen at the proper place. But their enacting it as a law that all sins are to be enumerated, their denying that sin is discharged except under the condition that the resolution to confess has been firmly conceived, their pretense that there is no admission into paradise if the opportunity of confession has been neglected are things which it is impossible to bear. Are all sins to be enumerated? But David, who I presume, had honestly pondered with himself as to the confession of his sins, exclaimed, quote, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Unquote. Psalm 19, verse 12, 
and in another passage, quote, Mine iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Unquote. Psalm 38, verse 4. He knew how deep was the abyss of our sins, how numerous the forms of wickedness, how many heads the hydra carried, how long a tail it drew. Therefore he did not sit down to make a catalog, but from the depth of his distress cried unto the Lord, quote, I am overwhelmed and buried and sore vexed. The gates of hell have encircled me. Let thy right hand deliver me from the abyss into which I am plunged, and from the death which I am ready to die. Unquote. Who can now think of a computation of his sins when he sees David's inability to number his? Section 17. By this ruinous procedure, the souls of those who were affected with some sense of God have been most cruelly wrecked. First, they betook themselves to calculation, proceeding according to the formula given by the schoolmen, and dividing their sins into boughs, branches, twigs, and leaves. Then they weighed the qualities, quantities, and circumstances, and in this way, for some time, matters proceeded. But after they had advanced farther, when they looked around, naught was seen but sea and sky, no road, no harbor. The longer the space they ran over, a longer still met the eye. Nay, lofty mountains began to rise, and there seemed no hope of escape, none at least till after long wanderings. They were thus brought to a dead halt, till at length the only issue was found in despair. Here these cruel murderers, to ease the wounds which they had made, applied certain fomentations. Every one was to do his best. But new cares again disturbed, nay, new torments excruciated their souls. Quote, I have not spent enough time. I have not exerted myself sufficiently. Many things I have omitted through negligence. Forgetfulness proceeding from want of care is not excusable. Unquote. Then new drugs were supplied to alleviate their pains. Quote, Repent of your negligence, and provided it is not done so kindly, it will be pardoned. Unquote. All these things, however, could not heal the wound, being not so much alleviations as sore as poison besmeared with honey, that its bitterness might not at once offend the taste, but penetrate to the vitals before it could be detected. The dreadful voice, therefore, was always heard pealing in their ears. Quote, Confess all your sins, unquote, and the dread thus occasioned could not be pacified without sure consolation. Here let my readers consider whether it be possible to take an account of the actions of a whole year, or even to collect the sins committed in a single day, seeing every man's experience convinces him that at evening, in examining the faults of that single day, memory gets confused, so great is the number and variety presented. I am not speaking of dull and heartless hypocrites, who, after animadverting on three or four of their grosser offenses, think the work finished, but of the true worshippers of God, who, after they have performed their examination, feeling themselves overwhelmed, still add the words of John, quote, If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things, unquote. 1 John 3, verse 20. And therefore tremble at the thought of that judge, whose knowledge far surpasses our comprehension. Section 18. Though a good part of the world rested in these soothing suggestions by which this fatal poison was somewhat tempered, it was not because they thought that God was satisfied, or they had quite satisfied themselves. It was rather like an anchor cast out in the middle of the deep, which for a little interrupts the navigation, or a weary, worn-out traveler who lies down by the way. I give myself no trouble in proving the truth of this fact. Every one can be his own witness. I will mention generally what the nature of this law is. First, the observance of it is simply impossible, and hence its only result is to destroy, condemn, confound, to plunge into ruin and despair. Secondly, by withdrawing sinners from a true sense of their sins, it makes them hypocritical and ignorant both of God and themselves, for while they are wholly occupied with the enumeration of their sins, they lose sight of that lurking hydra, their secret iniquities and internal defilements, the knowledge of which would have made them sensible of their misery. But the surest rule of confession is to acknowledge and confess our sins to be an abyss so great as to exceed our comprehension. On this rule, we see the confession of the publican was formed, quote, God be merciful to me, a sinner, unquote. Luke 18, verse 13. As if he had said, How great, how very great a sinner, how utterly sinful I am. The extent of my sins I can neither conceive nor express. Let the depth of thy mercy engulf the depth of sin. What, you say, are we not to confess every single sin? Is no confession acceptable to God but that which is contained in the words, quote, I am a sinner, unquote? Nay, our endeavor must be, as much as in us lies, to pour out our whole heart before the Lord. Nor are we only in one word to confess ourselves sinners, but truly and sincerely acknowledge ourselves as such. 
to feel with our whole soul how great and various the pollutions of our sins are, confessing not only that we are impure, but what the nature of our impurity is, its magnitude, and its extent. Not only that we are debtors, but what the debts are which burden us, and how they were incurred. Not only that we are wounded, but how numerous and deadly are the wounds. When thus recognizing himself, the sinner shall have poured out his whole heart before God. Let him seriously and sincerely reflect that a greater number of sins still remains, and that the recesses are too deep for him thoroughly to penetrate. Accordingly, let him exclaim with David, quote, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Unquote. Psalm 19, verse 12. But when the schoolmen affirm that sins are not forgiven, unless the resolution to confess has been firmly conceived, and that the gate of paradise is closed on him who has neglected the opportunity of confessing when offered, for it be from us to concede this to them. The remission of sins is not different now from what it has ever been. In all the passages in which we read that sinners obtained forgiveness from God, we read not that they whispered in the ear of some priest. Indeed, they could not then confess, as priests were not then confessionaries, nor did the confessional itself exist. And for many ages afterwards this mode of confession by which sins were forgiven on this condition was unheard of. But not to enter into a long discussion, as if the matter were doubtful, the word of God, which abideth forever, is plain. Quote, when the wicked shall turn away from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Unquote. Ezekiel 18, verse 21. He who presumes to add to this declaration binds not sins, but the mercy of God. When they contend that judgment cannot be given unless the case is known, the answer is easy that they usurp the right of judging, being only self-created judges. And it is strange how confidently they lay down principles which no man of sound mind will admit. They give out that the office of binding and loosing has been committed to them as a kind of jurisdiction annexed to the right of inquiry, that the jurisdiction was unknown to the apostles their whole doctrine proclaims, nor does it belong to the priest to know for certainty whether or not a sinner is loosed, but to him from whom acquittal is asked, since he who only hears can ever know whether or not the enumeration is full and complete. Thus there would be no absolution without restricting it to the words of him who is to be judged. We may add that the whole system of loosing depends on faith and repentance, two things which no man can know of another so as to pronounce sentence. It follows, therefore, that the certainty of binding and loosing is not subjected to the will of an earthly judge, because the minister of the word, when he duly executes his office, can only acquit conditionally when, for the sake of the sinner, he repeats the words, quote, Whosoever sins ye remit. Unquote. lest he should doubt of the pardon which, by the command and voice of God, is promised to be ratified in heaven. Section 19. It is not strange, therefore, that we condemn that auricular confession as a thing pestilent in its nature and in many ways injurious to the church and desire to see it abolished. But if the thing were in itself indifferent, yet seeing it is of no use or benefit and has given occasion to so much impiety, blasphemy, and error, who does not think that it ought to be immediately abolished? They enumerate some of its uses, and boast of them as very beneficial, but they are either fictitious or of no importance. One thing they specially commend, that the blush of shame in the penitent is a severe punishment, which makes him more cautious for the future, and anticipates divine punishment by his punishing himself. As if a man was not sufficiently humbled with shame when brought under the cognizance of God at his supreme tribunal. Admirable proficiency, if we cease to sin because we are ashamed to make one man acquainted with it, and blush not at having God as the witness of our evil conscience. The assertion, however, as to the effect of shame, is most unfounded, for we may everywhere see that there is nothing which gives men greater confidence and license in sinning than the idea that after making confession to priests, they can wipe their lips and say, I have not done it. And not only do they during the whole year become bolder in sin, but secure against confession for the remainder of it, they never sigh after God, never examine themselves, but continue heaping sins upon sins, until, as they suppose, they get rid of them all at once. And when they have got rid of them, they think they are disburdened of their load, and imagine they have deprived God of the right of judging by giving it to the priest, have made God forgetful by making the priest conscious, Moreover, who is glad when he sees the day of confession approaching? Who goes with a cheerful mind to confess, and does not rather, as if he were dragged to prison with a rope about his neck, go unwillingly, and as it were, struggling against it? 
with the exception, perhaps, of the priests themselves, who take a fond delight in the mutual narrative of their own misdeeds as a kind of merry tales. I will not pollute my page by retailing the monstrous abominations with which auricular confession teems. I only say that if that holy man, Nectarius of whom, see above, section 7, did not act unadvisedly, when for one rumor of whoredom he banished confession from his church, or rather from the memory of his people, the innumerable acts of prostitution, adultery, and incest which it produces in the present day warns us of the necessity of abolishing it. Section 20, as to the pretense of the confessionaries respecting the power of the keys, and their placing in it, so to speak, the sum and substance of their kingdom, we must see what force it ought to have. Were the keys, then, they ask, given without a cause? Was it said without a cause, quote, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, unquote. Matthew 18, verse 18. Do we make void the word of Christ? I answered that there was a weighty reason for giving the keys, as I lately explained, and will again show at greater length when I come to treat of excommunication. Book 4, Chapter 12. But what if I should cut off the handle for all such questions with one sword, these that priests are neither vicars nor successors of the apostles? But that also will be elsewhere considered in Book 4, Chapter 6. Now, at the very place where they are most desirous to fortify themselves, they erect a battering ram by which all their own machinations are overthrown. Christ did not give his apostles the power of binding and loosing before he endued them with the Holy Spirit. I deny, therefore, that any man who has not previously received the Holy Spirit is competent to possess the power of the keys. I deny that anyone can use the keys unless the Holy Spirit precede teaching and dictating what is to be done. They pretend, indeed, that they have the Holy Spirit, but by their works deny Him, unless, indeed, we are to suppose that the Holy Spirit is some vain thing of no value, as they certainly do feign, but we will not believe them. With this engine, they are completely overthrown. Whatever be the door of which they boast of having the key, we must always ask whether they have the Holy Spirit, who is arbiter and ruler of the keys. If they reply that they have, we must again ask whether the Holy Spirit can err. This they will not venture to say distinctly, although by their doctrine they indirectly insinuate it. Therefore we must infer that no priestlings have the power of the keys, because they everywhere and indiscriminately loose what the Lord was pleased should be bound, and bind what he has ordered to be loosed. Section 21. When they see themselves convicted on the clearest evidence of loosing and binding worthy and unworthy without distinction, they lay claim to power without knowledge. And although they dare not deny that knowledge is requisite for the proper use, they still affirm that the power itself has been given to bad administrators. This, however, is the power, quote, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, unquote. Either the promise of Christ must be false, or those who are endued with this power bind and loose properly. There is no room for the evasion that the words of Christ are limited, according to the merits of him who is loosed are bound. We admit that none can be bound or loosed but those who are worthy of being bound or loosed. But the preachers of the gospel and the church have the word by which they can measure this worthiness. By this word, preachers of the gospel can promise forgiveness of sins to all who are in Christ by faith, and can declare a sentence of condemnation against all and upon all who do not embrace Christ. In this word, the church declares that, quote, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, unquote, Quote, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Such it binds in sure fetters. By the same word it looses and consoles the penitent. But what kind of power is it which knows not what is to be bound or loosed? You cannot bind or loose without knowledge. Why then do they say that they absolve by authority given to them when absolution is uncertain? As regards us, this power is merely imaginary if it cannot be used. Now I hold either that there is no use, or one so uncertain as to be virtually no use at all. For when they confess that a good part of the priests do not use the keys duly, and that power without the legitimate use is ineffectual, who is to assure me that the one by whom I am loosed is a good dispenser of the keys? But if he is a bad one, what better has he given me than his nugatory dispensation? What is to be bound or loosed in you, I know not, since I have not the proper use of the keys. But if you deserve it, I absolve you. As much might be done, I say not by a leg, since they would scarcely listen to such a statement, but by the Turk or the devil. 
For it is just to say, I have not the word of God, the sure rule for loosing, but authority has been given to me to absolve you if you deserve it. We see, therefore, what their object was when they defined, see section 16, the keys as authority to discern and power to execute, and said that knowledge is added as a counselor, and counsels the proper use. Their object was to reign libidinously and licentiously without God and his word. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.